full-stack JavaScript applications have been possible since the creation of Node.js in 2009. Since then, the best practices for building and deploying these full-stack JavaScript applications have steadily evolved as the technology has evolved. React.js created a consolidation around the view layer, and then the emergence of AWS Lambda created a new paradigm for backend execution. Serverless tools such as DynamoDB offer auto-scaling abstractions in the database layer. CDNs such as Cloudflare and Fastly can now do processing at the edge. All around the ecosystem, there are changes, and these changes have affected how people want to deploy their applications, particularly full-stack JavaScript applications. Brian LaRue is the founder of Begin.com, a hosting and deployment company built on serverless tools. He's also the primary committer to Architect, a framework for defining applications to be deployed to serverless infrastructure. Brian joins the show to talk about his work in the JavaScript ecosystem and his vision for Begin.com. Brian's also speaking at Reactathon, which is a San Francisco JavaScript conference taking place March 30th and 31st in San Francisco. And this week is all interviews with speakers from Reactathon. If you're interested in JavaScript and the React ecosystem, then stay tuned. And if you hear something that you like, you can hear more at the conference in person. You can also hear more podcast episodes about React by listening to the Reactathon podcast, which is available at reactathon.com/podcast. Ryan Larue, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. That's awesome. I'm excited. You Thanks. were yeah, it's <laughs> great to have you. So you were part of the JavaScript community from the early days. How did you become involved in JavaScript? I was a web developer really early, and that internet thing kind of just happened right when I got out of high school, around 96. And so you couldn't really avoid JavaScript uh, if you became a web developer. But those early days, it was not cool to be a web developer that you know solely focused on front end. I don't think people actually really would have said I was a JavaScript developer in like 2003 or whatever. It was not until around Google Maps and maybe Gmail that it became a thing. And yeah, I, I just love building software. I don't really self-identify as one particular tribe. JavaScript is obviously the runaway train that we're all on now. And I was lucky to be a part of the web early on. So it wasn't really like a conscious choice or a thing so much as I'm old. When Node came out, and developers started building server-side JavaScript. Were you skeptical at first? Were you a true believer from the beginning? Oh, I was all in. There was a bunch of us looking for this thing quite early. So the concept of Node was predicted well in advance of its actual existence. There was a number of people that realized that there were these huge companies largely incentivized to work on the VM. And so you can't have a tab open and then pause and wait for the JVM to start up. When you open a new tab in a browser, it's got to be instantaneous. And that cold start was a really big key problem for early cloud and early orchestrated scaling. So a lot of the big vendors that were out there that were building browser uh, JavaScript runtimes into the browser realized this. And we knew that eventually there was going to be a server-side runtime to complement it. Early on, a lot of people actually thought it was going to be this thing by a guy named James Duncan. And I can't remember what it's called, it was like Server.js or something like that. And James had a good approach, and I used it a little bit and I liked it. There was another thing called Jaxer at that time, but Ryan Dahl's approach to Node was just immediately the right thing. 
everyone, as soon as they saw it, was like, oh, that's what it's going to look like. Uh, a lot of previous attempts were trying to model after what was popular at the time, which were these big runtimes, like the JVM and the .NET runtime, whereas Ryan's approach was more Linuxy, more low-level primitives that you could compose together. And so, yeah, it, it hit, but it hit with like a, a thunderclap and that was it. Everybody was just like, oh, that's what it's going to look like. That'll be the one. And then, uh, yeah. Do you have a perspective on why React became the most popular front-end framework? Hmm. That's a great question. I suppose it addressed a really major core problem. I think what was really interesting about when React came out was that it wasn't popular. A lot of people immediately eschewed it for its uniqueness. People saw it and they, they thought, well, that... That looks like something we've seen before, which was E4X, and that was a disaster in the browser, so there's no way this will be, this will be a thing. But Facebook you know, was very persistent in, in keeping the message on about what the benefits were, and they kept showing up to conferences and talking about immediate render. And at that time, the JavaScript community somehow suffers from repeated collective amnesia. And so at one point at that time, people were talking about two-way data binding like it was a good idea. Two-way data binding was a bad idea in the 80s, and it was a bad idea in the 90s, and we didn't really remember that, and so we've tried to re-implement it, and I think things like Angular and Knockout and Ember were trying to popularize this idea of two-way data binding, and React really pitted itself against that with this immediate render concept. When you treat your, your DOM like a game loop, you know, declarative programming and immediate render is not news. That's something we've been doing in video game programming for a very long time. It just eliminates a huge class of bugs. Uh, due to state. And so I think it became popular for that reason. It was a little bit different, and it solved one really hard problem really well. Has the popularity of React had downstream effects on middleware and backend? What a great question. It absolutely has. So we see people now transpiling their backends, which is fascinating. So people are building whole architectures and deploying this stuff to the cloud in a dialect that is not JavaScript, in a third-party dialect, worse, a third-party proprietary dialect controlled by an advertising company that sells ads to hostile foreign governments. But aside from that, it's great. And that third-party dialect has nothing to do with your backend. But because your front-end requires it and you want to have interop between your templates and your backend, they're transpiling the whole whack. And I think it's having the predictable result. We're seeing backends kind of get a little complicated with this extra weight. And really, it's all in service of just being able to render a template, which is pretty funny. You spent a few years as part of the Apache Cordova community, which enabled people to write mobile applications with JavaScript and HTML. Yeah. This was back in 2012 and 2014, that span of time. What kinds of applications could you build with Cordova, and where did the framework hit its limitations? Yeah, that's a great question. So Cordova came from PhoneGap, and what happened was we, we had built PhoneGap in around, I think we started working on that in 2008, and we were acquired by Adobe in 2011. And the broader open source community was really scared that Adobe was going to try and kill it, and so were we. So we made a deal with Adobe that we wouldn't kill it, that we would donate that source code to the Apache Software Foundation so that it would remain open and free. This isn't a super well-known story, but I think it's been long enough that I can tell it. At that time, we were in litigation with the Gap. So the original PhoneGap uh, logo was Helvetica, and at that time, it was trendy to like bold half your word if you put two words together. 
And so we left it Helvetica phone and bolded Gap. Guess what bold Gap Helvetica is? It's, it looks like the clothing company. It Gap. is literally the Gap's logo. So <laughs> Apache was very gracious and wanted to accept our source code, but did not want to accept our litigation. So <laughs> we had to pick a name really fast. And I lived on Cordova Street in Vancouver. So that became the name of Apache Cordova. Could you just change the logo? Yeah, it was more complicated than that. They, they wanted to take it to uh, a full set of lawyers talking to lawyers. And so we weren't in a position to move fast enough to make all that go away. So we were just like, fuck it, whatever. Just find and replace the name and give it to Apache under a different name. The downstream distribution can be PhoneGap. We ended up selling with them and it was all fine. I think the, the deal we made was that we couldn't make any apparel. We almost vindictively named it Apache Khakis just to be <laughs> snarky, but we, we didn't do that. Anyway, so what did it do? It, it let you take HTML, CSS, and JavaScript and build native apps for the phone. We achieved this by embedding onboard web browser and then just full screening it and letting you, you know, build your app. By the time I left in 2014, about 20% of the app store was using this technique or technology. So it definitely had a big impact. I think a lot of people are mad about it still as popular things get in software. Uh, some people like it, some people don't. You can build a bad website. You know, that's Sturgeon's Law. We know 90% of the internet is not great. So yeah, of that 20% of the app store, I'm sure 90% of it was also kind of bad. And Cordova and PhoneGap kind of garnered this reputation as uh, not being the greatest platform for, for building for native devices. Which isn't true. You know, you can build something bad in any technology and you can build something great in any technology. Early versions of Instagram were embedded web views. It, it did okay. So it's possible to build a great thing with these, with these things. I just wanted to get a little bit of perspective on your experience with Cordova because yeah. I understand that it worked to a certain extent, but my sense is that React Native, Flutter, these technologies have made cross-platform mobile development a whole lot more of a reality. Oh, probably. I imagine they have. I mean, it was a reality before, too. And I think all of these things in aggregate might add up to like a small percentage of websites. So, you know, good for them. What I, what I see now, though, is that the web is coming back into its own, and that would be your default distribution channel. You wouldn't mm. build a iOS app because you'd be limiting your audience just so much. There are cases for that. It makes sense to do that. I'm not saying don't do that, but I am saying that you know you would probably want to start with the largest distribution channel possible for your software, and that would most likely be the web. But do you have a sense of what, if there were any technical bottlenecks back in 2012, 2014 timeframe that have been eased up on today? Oh, like, yeah. If, you, if you're talking about cross-platform mobile development. Well, if I'm trying to think of examples. Like Apple used to have this 300 millisecond tap click delay on links. There are just lots of small things that have changed over the years and in aggregate have added up to a much better experience. Skia was this thing that Android slowly rolled out uh, for their rendering layer, which has made a huge difference for animations on the web. I think actually WebKit is now a little bit behind as far as the mobile web goes, which is pretty sad as Apple was a real leader there in the beginning. But across the board now, I just don't know why you would default to choosing building a native mobile app personally, but I don't know what the use case is either. If your use case is, you know, edge machine learning, then obviously, yes, <laughs> that will be a good way to do it. If your use case is display words on page, 
unless you're a restaurant, I don't know why you wouldn't use the web to do that. If you're a restaurant, you would publish a PDF through a flash website, obviously. <laughs> but, <laughs> but yeah, that, that's kind of like my view of it. And, you know, this is in tech, we have this thing where we think that there's this winner take all and that there's this sort of mutual exclusion. And, that you know, as soon as Flutter came around, that everything else was going to go away. And it's actually not true. There's, there's no real case of winner take all. There's winners take most. That's for sure. There's a power law. But tech is not exclusive and mutually exclusive. And old tech doesn't go away. It's all additive. So Cordova's existence didn't negate the existence of previous tech any more than Flutter's existence negated the existence of React Native or whatever else came along. These are just options. Around 2015, you became interested in Lambda. Yeah. And yeah. The original use cases for Lambda were mostly around glue code. Mm-hmm. Did you believe even back then that Lambda could be used as a main backend server? Oh, fully. Yeah, it blew my mind. So in 2012, the predicate for our acquisition to Adobe wasn't that PhoneGap was awesome, even though it super was. The predicate for our acquisition was that we had a lot of people using a service that we had built called PhoneGap Build. So PhoneGap Build is a hosted cloud service. You upload a zip file of HTML, CSS, and JavaScript, and then you can download an IPA file or an APK file. We did all the compiling ourselves. Magic. That magic turns out to be a Rails app that I built in 2010 that we just slowly bolted stuff on (laughs) and duct tape and band-aids and prayers and hopes. And it got bigger and bigger and bigger as it became part of the creative cloud. It started to pump some serious major, major traffic. Like I'm talking millions and millions of builds. And I learned a very valuable lesson. I learned that I will never do that again. (laughs) As soon as I saw API Gateway get announced, I was like, oh, Thank God, I'll never have to load balance another monolith again. And so I was immediately there. And I think this is a common story. The people that get this whole surplus thing uh, have suffered by the old ways of doing things. The people that haven't suffered by the old ways of doing things just think this is obvious. Yeah, of course, that's how you build it. You know, it's going to be easy. Just put this thing up on the Internet and it'll scale forever. And it's never been that easy. And Lambda was my first glimpse into what a stateless, isolated runtime architecture would look like. And as soon as they said they'd take care of the HTTP layer, I knew that was it. You make a good point. We don't really deal with scalability issues anymore. Well, I think we do. Now they're people issues. We've realized that the technical side was actually the easy part. I think, you know, building out a very large team that can collaborate on the on these small interlocking pieces is still a very much an unsolved problem and something that we're figuring out. You know, we, we're getting there and we're, we're creating technical solutions like service discovery, but you know, these are old problems and they're, they're, you know, we're getting there, but it's a coordination issue now more than anything else, I think. It's not really like how, it's who and what. How did Lambda change your perspective on how to build backend architecture? It was a bit of a cold shower. I did the thing that everybody else does. I just did it a little earlier than most people. So I took Lambda and I made a greedy proxy at the root and I put a web server in it. And it works. If you want to put Express inside of a Lambda function, you can do it. And if you want to make that Lambda function accept all incoming traffic, you can do it. And it will scale. It'll scale great for a hello world. And then as soon as you start adding code to it, it's going to get progressively worse. Because cold start is directly correlated to payload size of your execution environment. So if your execution environment is small, your you know, cold start's going to be pretty fast. If it's less than 5 megs, we've measured it's usually sub-second. I don't know of any sub-5 megabyte monoliths. 
I'm sure they exist. I don't think they're going to have a lot of functionality. And so this is the trap. And a lot of popular frameworks popularize this trap. Our stuff doesn't do this because we learned this lesson early. But if you put everything in one function, as that function grows, it's going to get slower. You're going to have worse cold starts. And, and that'll fail eventually. You can't fix a cold start with pinging it. This is another myth that's kind of been propagated. If the container gets started, then you, know, you just keep it alive. And that'll work. But that's not actually thinking about how this thing works. These things scale uh, horizontally. So you're just keeping one container alive. You're still going to get cold starts for the other 4,999 possible provision capacity lambdas that you have. And so pinging it just changes the probability of you getting that cold start, but it doesn't fix a cold start. So the solution is the same solution for all complex problems. You break it down into smaller pieces and you eliminate that cold start. So cold start is still an issue today. It's an issue for people that build Lambda functions bigger than five megabytes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's not an issue for anybody else. And it's an issue with the other cloud platforms that aren't Firecracker-based, I should say. So things that are Knative-based or whatever are going to be slower, because they are. Let's get into that in a sec. But actually, what you said about the fact that you can't just keep a single Lambda around and keep pinging it, and then as soon as you need to scale like scale up then why doesn't that strategy work because lambda scales for you right and so you don't you can control what's called your your concurrency how many instances of the container that they boot up it's actually a micro vm but whatever as in like scale to one or scale to two scale to three right and your default is a thousand i think and generally the first time you call support they'll, they'll bump it to five thousand and i, I mean, know your max is a thousand mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. and that's for your whole account too which is worth noticing so if you have a whole bunch of lambdas one lambda can ddos the rest of them but this is also the scale up right this is not necessarily the the scale now they have like a scale to a minimum right like you can keep three lambdas running at Mm -hmm. all times if you want to for a single and that's the kind of like keep alive warm ping start thing yeah that's great for legacy architectures that are running jar files or whatever Mm -hmm. and have bad cold starts right That's that's a good idea it kind of defeats the purpose in my view the idea of this whole serverless thing would be to scale to zero the default should be that if i'm not using it it shouldn't I shouldn't be paying for it. I shouldn't mm-hmm. have provision capacity sitting there. So this is the problem with the Lambda warmer, the pinging thing, is you're just keeping a container alive. You didn't right. you didn't change the the cold start's still gonna happen. Right. You're still gonna get it. And somebody's gonna get it. You just somebody's won't see it as it. you won't see it as often. Right. And it's you won't necessarily get the cold start on the first end users, you will get them on every time you you have you need to spin up a new container, whoever is hitting that new container, whoever's getting routed to that new container is going to hit the cold start. Exactly. And, you know, this has been kind of the, I think the biggest stumbling block for a lot of people, because we're used to building these monolithic architectures where we have these large balls of code that we deploy all at once. As soon as you embrace breaking the code up, you can deploy it in parallel, which is obviously a lot faster. And then the cold starts also faster because there's less payload to start up. But we just haven't really internalized building this way yet. And Firecracker, this is the open source virtual machine system that AWS released sometime last year? Yeah, they released it at uh, reInvent 2018. It was a big surprise. I wasn't expecting them to do this. I don't think anybody was really uh, saw that one coming. 
It's the first major infra core piece that I know of that Amazon's really gotten out there with. And yeah, it would be competitive with things like Kubernetes. It's an orchestration engine. That Kubernetes start- with Knative, right? You know, I don't even know because I don't care, honestly. (laughs) Um, It allows you to start micro VMs. We could totally get into the weeds about how that's different than a container. It's got a better cold start and isolation property. Let's do it. Let's go deep. Give me as deep as you know. Well, (laughs) I would put it on the listener to go check out the reInvent talks about Firecracker and come to their own conclusions because I think this will raise hackles, especially with people that are big on Kubernetes. I'm not saying that this is, Kubernetes is going away, and I'm not saying it's bad, and I'm definitely not saying you're bad if you like Kubernetes. It's fine. It's totally okay. But there is another thing out there with better characteristics for isolation and startup, and that would be Firecracker. What makes it better? I think it's smaller. I think there's just less stuff. It's written with the sole purpose of being stateless. It's written in Rust. That's that's all I got for you. I don't really know what to say. The benchmarks are out there. The code's out there. Hmm. It's all free and open. It's used in production with this small company called Amazon running this small service called AWS Lambda, which apparently makes up 60% of the traffic on EC2. So probably worth looking into. Well, sure. But the API for accessing it, uh, the developer experience, like the fact that... You know, Kubernetes is is used largely for like long running yes. services, which are not like lambdas. Totally. I mean, it seems like a very different application than Kubernetes. Well, it's load balance orchestrated operating systems. So you tell me. I, I don't know. Maybe they are very different. In it, that I regard. mean, is it? But is it? Do you know if it's? I mean, if it's closely designed with lambda in mind, like lambda are supposed to be these like flaky you know, spin up functions that are sub, you know. Fargate also runs on it too. Okay. Their other Hmm. thing. But yeah, I agree. And I don't know that we want stateful long-lived workloads. I mean, I think we've come to the conclusion that's a bad idea. Mm -hmm. We lose parallelism, resiliency. Data is harder to guarantee that you're going to keep it around. Lots of problems. So keeping a stateless operating system or runtime architecture seems like a pretty good idea. Do you know what they did? Do you know anything else about what they did to speed up the Lambda spin up? Like what when they swapped out Firecracker under the surface for whatever there was before, what specific advantages were? I think it's just less stuff. Less it's, stuff. Yeah, it's just less stuff. It's like a smaller, lighter weight thing that sits right on top of, well, they, they say it runs on top of the metal, but I believe it runs on top of EC2 virtual machines, and then it itself runs VMs. Okay. And they're very specific that these are micro VMs and not containers. I'm not really sure what the exact distinction between those mm. realities would be personally. And if you go and look at all their literature about this stuff, everybody uses the same terms for these things, roughly. So I don't know. But what I do know is it's faster and it's also open. And I also know that I'm never going to run it. So like running Firecracker would be equivalent to me, like running Kubernetes. And that's work I'm just totally uninterested in doing. I'm not saying that people don't have reasons to do that. I'm not saying that it's bad. I'm not saying that you're bad if you do it. Look, I've seen a lot. <laughs> I totally get it. I've but seen like... a lot of advertisements <laughs> that tell me that I need to run Kubernetes. So I'm pretty sure I've got to run Kubernetes. Yeah. Some I... of those advertisements have been on this show. 
I don't know how I have managed to avoid this, but yeah, I haven't. So I'm, you know, speaking from a place of ignorance. Perhaps I'm missing out. But uh, yeah, I don't run it. And I don't know anything about it. I'm not using it. I'm really happy not running Firecracker too. I'm a very happy customer of Lambda. It's totally fine for me. And what aspects of a fully serverless backend should be fulfilled by Lambda? And what should be fulfilled by rich services like API Gateway? Well, you want to offload as much as you can. I mean, that would be just kind of the general predicate, I think, when we're, when we're thinking about a software project. It's that old Larry Wall saying that like, a good programmer is a lazy programmer. You know, We want to outsource as much of this stuff as we can. Now, this can also be bad. You know, if we're building our applications with as many third-party solutions as possible, that's also very risky. So I think there's a balance to be struck. But, you know, I don't know if I'm a regular line of business out there, like I'm an auto body shop conglomerate of some kind. Running data centers is not my core competency. We can generally agree on that now. Like most people would agree if you're fixing mufflers, your job isn't, you know, fixing DCs. So this is just the logical conclusion of that whole thing. You know, if we keep taking that further and further, why am I running, you know, pods or instances or VMs? I shouldn't be doing that either. I should just be focused on my runtime logic. And hopefully when I deploy it, all the rest is magic and it just scales. That's a, a wonderful vision for the future. I don't know if that future truly exists because there are times when you got to drop down and go low level and there are circumstances where you can't outsource all of the undifferentiated heavy lifting. Some of those circumstances might not even be technical. It might be as simple as that Amazon is a competitor or whatever. So my general vibe is Lambda is your last knife in the toolbox and you have a whole bunch of other tools available to you. So if you can do the job without Lambda, please do. Because all that runtime logic that you're writing is liability. And just like configuration is liability, but runtime logic is a worse liability. If there's a service you can use that does the thing better, outsource it. Absolutely. Tell me more about the stack of AWS services that every AWS user should know. What is the prototypical AWS stack or the must-know AWS stack? Well, I mean, that's a great question because I think a lot of people come to the table with these cloud providers and they think, oh my God, way too complicated. There's no way I can deal with this. There's no way I can grok this. And I don't blame them. You know, When I open up the AWS console, I have a minor panic attack if anything's changed because I'm like, oh shit, I might not be able to find anything again. <laughs> it's just too vast and too big. So how do we deal with a, a big complicated problem? We break it down into smaller constituent parts. And so Amazon's really no different. You can treat it like a big complicated problem and it turns out they have a lot of solutions and you probably don't need them all so if you're building a web application you're not going to need SageMaker which is their machine learning tool so you can just not worry about that whole suite of tools so for my problem space the things I'm interested in I typically am doing web app development I think there's eight services that you need to build fully serverless web apps I think you need CloudFormation you want to build this stuff with infrastructure as code. You don't want to outsource that to a third party. I think you need CloudFront, which is their CDN. It's the oldest CDN. It's got over 220 points of presence, so it's pretty good. I think it's the most points of presence. You need application server of some kind. I'd say API Gateway is a good candidate. API Gateway gives you Lambda. Lambda gives you any runtime you want. You can even mix and match them on a per route basis. You need background tasks some kind of like queue 
SQS, maybe. You need asynchronous unordered background tasks. That would be SNS, which also gives you push notifications. Got a database, got CDN, got an app server, scheduled functions. So you need to like run backups every hour. Mm -hmm. uh, that would be EventBridge with their uh, scheduled functions. Sometimes people call those cron lambdas. Yeah, those are the only primitives I can think of off the top of my head. And so AWS has over 300 services, but I think I only just named maybe eight. And you can build an app that can scale forever and is only bound by your credit card and will cost you nothing if no one's using it. Those are pretty powerful concepts. As far as database, you're mm -hmm. a big fan of DynamoDB. I am. Why is Dynamo such a strong choice of transactional database? Well, for me, Dynamo was the database I've been waiting for. And so again, I'm, I'm a little older and I'm, I've, I've had a few databases in my time in the late 90s, early 2000s. Believe it or not, we, we very often would use Access, which is a database technically from Microsoft. We would connect to it with a thing called ODBC and it would always fall apart. And so we'd upgrade to Microsoft SQL Server. And at some point, open source databases started to get popular because these database licensing fees were just so high. And so we started to use things like MySQL and Postgres. And I love those databases for what it's worth right up into the minute I had to shard one. Now that I've been through that experience, I want to manage database all the time. And a managed database that I still have to shard is not managed enough. And so when Dynamo came out, uh, initially, I was pretty skeptical. I didn't like the idea of a proprietary database. I didn't like the idea of a database I couldn't run locally. And I didn't like that there was this weird proprietary like uh, query language I had to learn. I hated all those things. What I like, though, is single-digit millisecond latency, no matter how many rows I have. I like automatic backups. I like that that database only pays for what you use. And I found the query language fine after a while. It's still a rough spot. They have a local development environment now. The tooling is much better, and it meets all of my personal requirements. I think you get 25 gigs free in their free tier. So, you know, yeah, you're locking into a proprietary thing, and data is where all the gravity is at these cloud providers. But I would rather outsource that problem until I had it later. And yes, Dynamo is expensive. I'm sure people right now are saying, oh, Dynamo is really expensive. And all of the people that think that, I guarantee you have never hired a DBA because that's expensive. And that's a problem you will not have if you're dealing with Dynamo. So I like it. I'm willing to outsource that part of the differentiated heavy lifting. It's been fine for me. The other aspect that makes Dynamo a bit weird is you have to figure out your queries up front, which makes modeling it a little harder. It's also extremely flexible, though, so it's pretty cheap to spray this data all over the place. And so if you need to change things, it's actually not that challenging. Whereas I find with SQL databases, changing things can be very painful. <laughs> Do you have any issues with the idea of going all in on AWS? I do not. I think a lot of people do, and I think that's normal. I'm trained to have the exact same reaction to things. I think it's more risky to go with one of Amazon's competitors, just based on historic precedents. I don't think it's going to work out well for them. And I don't think you can disintermediate Amazon. I think they've become a de facto standard. And we can just look at the adoption of their Lambda functions, Atlassian, Twilio, Netlify, Zeit, us. Like so many people are just running on their functions platform, which is their signature. How many S3 clones are out there? There's at least three, every major cloud player. 
So they've already established themselves as a de facto standard. Whether or not we're willing to admit that as an industry is a different topic. So I think if you're uh, worried about lock-in, and you should be, I'd be very worried if I chose not Amazon. Are there services in other cloud providers that you find particularly useful? Well, I have issues with Amazon's onboarding experience and their their development experience overall, but I'm dealing with that with our own company. I think there's good reasons to go adopt a Layer 2 cloud provider or a different cloud provider if it's comfortable for you. I don't think Google and Microsoft are going to go out of business. And I think the Layer 2 providers are, are actually providing a very helpful service for onboarding newer users or younger users or people without mission-critical workloads. So yeah, I, you know, I think it's fine if those are your reasons. I, I'm sure if you're you know, a Kubernetes expert that you're probably interested in whatever Google's got going on. It seems logical to me since that's sort of supposed to be the home or maybe Red Hat is, I don't know. Yeah, you know, go for it. If you're a Microsoft shop and all you know is .NET, then obviously it makes sense to be looking at Azure. And I think there's going to be more than one player. I don't know that there'll be 10. I don't, most likely there's going to be two or three, and we're pretty sure who we know who number two and one are anyways right now. Are there situations where a developer cannot be completely all in on functions as a service and things like API gateway? When does the developer have no choice but to use VMs or Kubernetes or container as a service? Well, long-lived stateful workloads would be one. I'd say machine learning, especially stuff that you're doing in-house. If you're drawing outside the lines with TensorFlow, you're going to have a real hard time doing that with a managed service right now, which I think most people that are doing hardcore ML are running their own workloads. So that's yet to become managed. But if you're just building like a database-backed web app, you have no excuse, in my view. You're living in the past and wasting time. And by the way, I'm not saying this and don't feel bad and like take this as an attack on your, your developer world if you're doing that. I'm just saying like you would be well served to take a look at these managed solutions that take care of a lot of this stuff for you now. If I have a fully serverless application, there are a variety of ways I can define it and describe it. I can use CloudFormation. I can use the serverless framework. Mm-hmm. I can use a framework that you've worked on called Architect. Mm-hmm. Describe these different methods of application description. Yeah. So infra as code is a really important concept. And I'm not sure that this concept has actually permeated our industry yet. So infra as code is downstream of an earlier idea called configuration management. And this kind of came about in the Rails years. Rails got really popular in around 2005, 2006. Everybody jumped on board, started setting up their own Rails servers and realizing how hard it was to get Linux into a place that was friendly and possibly normal for everyone. This was probably the predicate for Heroku existing. It was just making that part easier because it was just so hard. You know, which Linux and which package manager on Linux and, you know, which packages. And so we started creating these pretty Byzantine deployment processes where we would embed bash scripts inside of YAML files. And and it calmed down. Eventually, we have things like Puppet Chef, Ansible, SaltStack to make a lot of that easier. And in more recent years, a second generation of these tools has come along. I'd say Terraform was probably among the vanguard of these tools. And the idea is that we're entirely declarative. We're not embedding scripts anymore. 
we're going to have a deterministic single artifact on the other side of this, and it's going to be exactly the same no matter who fucking runs it anywhere in the world. And that's a big deal because that reproducibility is key for us to get to bug resolution and to keep velocity. So we, we want these deterministic file formats that are checked in with the code that it depends on. And the way I like to describe Infra's code to people is that it's like a lock file for your cloud resources. So we're used to having lock files for our code resources that we depend on that are third party. We want to have a lock file for the cloud resources we depend on too, so that when we deploy, we get the thing we expected. And you, this all seems obvious. If you didn't come from the old world, this would be like, yeah, that's what you want. But the old world, that is not what we had. You know, we had Linux servers all over the place. We didn't know what version they were running. We had to SSH into these things and patch them ourselves. So, so we're moving there slowly. CloudFormation is Amazon's attempt at configuration management, which has morphed into Infra's code. And CloudFormation is ancient. So the CloudFormation documents have a date stamp on the top for their version. And that date stamp is from 2010. <laughs> So CloudFormation is 10 years old, which is unbelievable to me. But they've, you know, done the Amazon thing. It didn't get worse. It just got more and more stuff and got better with time. CloudFormation is also extremely verbose, and it's hard to write. And I think if you are a newer developer, it is an extremely steep curve to get up. So there are community ecosystem projects out there that compile down to CloudFormation. One of them is Serverless Framework. Great.com. Excellent name. It takes YAML, turns it into more YAML. Serverless Framework's predicate is to go wide, not deep. So they support all the major clouds. I think they even have a Knative adapter now. So if you want to deploy functions to your own Kubernetes cluster, you can do that in a way that would be familiar, I suppose, to those developers. And then Architect is like a Serverless Framework in that it compiles to CloudFormation, but it's different in that it's focused for web apps. And we only support out of the box those eight services that I was talking about earlier. And so if your goal is to try and get to a whole bunch of clouds, ostensibly, you would think that that would be with the same workload, but it's not cross-platform mm -hmm. in that way. It's just it supports the different clouds, same as Terraform. Then this would be a good tool for you, Terraform or Serverless Framework. If you're just trying to build a database-backed web app and get it on Amazon and you don't really care about all this stuff, then Architect might be a good choice for you. Tell me more about what you're trying to do with Architect. This is the application description, file format, compilation system deployment method that you're working on. Yeah. So arc.codes, we started working on in 2015. And we did that because at that time, the only other serverless framework at that time was a thing called JAWS, which became serverless.com. And I really admire Austin and serverless, so I'm not, I don't really believe we're competing. I think we're competing with people that don't care about serverless in general. <laughs> we're not competing with each other, so no slight on them. You know, we could have easily adopted serverless had it been a few more months along. But we built Architect because there was nothing else at the time that was web-focused. So we built it initially because we needed it, and we realized very quickly Having in-house proprietary framework for building serverlessly was a huge liability for our startup. So we donated it to the OpenJS Foundation. It would not be coupled to our startup, and it would just be its own entity that could live separate from us. After my experience with Adobe, I was 
not really into having that IP as a part of my company, just for a variety of reasons, <laughs> not the least of which I just wanted to see this thing continue on and have outside a contribution. So that was around 2017 that we donated it to OpenJS Foundation. And yeah, it's been steadily growing ever since. And it's not the most popular framework, and I'm totally okay with that. I think a lot of people will be like, oh, well, what's the most popular? It's like asking, you know, Nickelback's popular. Who cares what's popular? Is it good for your use case is the question, right? And for web app developers, I know it's very good. So this is a application description format that assumes you are on top of AWS, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It does, but it doesn't. This is something that's different from the other ones in that it's totally agnostic. We don't bring in Amazon service names into your code. So your code can be just your code and focus on your stuff. So one of the big problems with Amazon's complexity is that they use a lot of branded names for their business and they have bad names for stuff like API gateway HTTP APIs. Like that's a thing. Try Googling that. (laughs) You'll never get anything useful. There's other examples where they just sort of blanket your code looks like a NASCAR. It's covered in Amazon's logos. Mm. You want your code to focus on your business problem. And so we abstract it at a very high level, and then we just give things generic names. So instead of calling an SQS queue and, or an SNS topic, you publish to a queue or you published an event. And so we just use these high-level terms and totally just try and walk it back from the Amazonness. Hmm. But if I'm a developer, why... Would I want to use a framework on top of AWS? Why not just go directly to the AWS ecosystem? What do I gain from using this layer on top of AWS that you've built? I think that answer is a little more tricky now than it was a few years ago. So Amazon's aware of this problem and they're they're working on it. I think you still want a clean entry into this world, an entry that's going to be a little bit more developer focused. This is what's creating the opportunity for the layer two cloud providers. Amazon is somewhat intractable to get started with. And so these frameworks give people you know a head start. It's like a you get the last four years of our expertise the minute you hit NPM install. And that's a huge shortcut to figuring out all of this stuff yourself. The other thing we can do that Amazon cannot do for you is tell you what not to use. And so Amazon hates it when I say this, but it's true. Here's, here's some things that are true about Amazon. Amazon's not getting smaller, right? They're not going to ship less features next year. They're not going to tomorrow you know, say, we only use these five services. They're never going to get slower, and they're never going to stop growing this complexity. So what we can do is say, here are the eight services that we can just put you on rails with and get you to the other side. We're not going to block you from using all this other stuff, but we're going to make it so fast that you can deploy to Amazon within 10 seconds. Now, that sounds crazy, but you actually can deploy to Amazon in 10 seconds right now if you want to, and you can do it on your phone. Okay, so talking, <laughs> talking more... I don't think I want to deploy on my phone, do I? I think if you have a developer experience that's mobile friendly, you'll you'll start to like it. I think the reason that you think that's weird is because you don't you're not used to it yet. Hmm. Conversation for another day. Yeah. So yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> your system architect, you have a file format called ARC, mm-hmm. and there's a process of parsing that format and turning it into a deployment. What does that process look like? Uh, we have a, a lexer and a parser and all that good stuff, but the format's actually not that interesting. We also support JSON, YAML, and TOML if you want to write in those formats. 
we felt that those formats have sort of, they're more data serialization formats than they are for configuration. YAML is definitely a configuration format, and TOML any file is definitely a configuration format, but they're brittle configuration formats. If you get one character wrong in a YAML file, it's still valid YAML, but it's probably not a valid deployment artifact. And TOML has similar problems where it's, it's got significant ordering of, of items. So we felt there was a justification to create our own format, but we got a great deal of pushback about that. So we, we ceded to the mob's demands and we made it open enough that you can write in JSON if you want to. We don't think you want to, and we think that we've created a nicer format, and it's just a traditional Lexer parser that turns it into JSON at the end of the day. If you want to check that out, you can check it out. If you want to avoid it completely, you can avoid it completely. I've had people say, you can't just go create a format to me, and I'm like, well, somebody just went and created the other formats. And, you know, we've been using them now for over 10 years, and they've shown their brittleness. You know, there isn't two YAML parsers that treat YAML the same way, and that's a major problem. What kinds of applications are a good fit for using the architect format? Oh, definitely web apps. That's what it's designed for. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, so, you know, database-backed web apps, just boring old cruddy web apps, like what 90% of us are working on right now. So most of my web apps, I am using external APIs, like I might use Twilio, maybe I'm using Firebase as an external database. How do I define those kinds of abstractions if your only definitions are these AWS services? Yeah, so you define your AWS primitives in .arc file or in one of the other manifest formats we support. And then we generate up your, your web app, which is usually an API gateway with an S3 bucket and DynamoDB. And now you want to integrate to third-party services. And you do that the exact same way you do in your monolith today. You probably have some environment variables in your write code. That's about it. I can make that more complicated. So <laughs> there is a Amazon service out there called EventBridge. And I'm actually really excited about it, but it's early. So don't jump on this thing because <laughs> you heard it on a podcast. But uh, EventBridge is super worth checking out. So it's Amazon's kind of blessed way to deal with third-party ecosystem event payloads in asynchronous fashion. And I have very strong feeling that this will be a common event bus for Amazon apps in the future. So that's one of the eight services that you're... Focused on? Well, yeah, we, it actually is part of CloudWatch, weirdly. So Amazon's got this thing called two pizza teams. And you read about it on the internet where it's like, you can only feed a team at Amazon two pizzas. And I always thought that was kind of like just something they said, but it's true. So like everything at AWS is a two pizza team behind it. And now when you think about like how wildly different these services are and how weirdly integrated they are, it starts to make sense. Why isn't these, these things so like coupled is because they're literally two small teams, maybe on different sides of the continent, right. working on their own thing. So the thing that gets me excited about EventBridge is that it's got built-in schema registry and schema validation built in. So you can wire it up with like whatever services that you want from a third party like Twilio or whatever, and you're still dealing with their event bus and their scalability and their retries and all the other stuff that Amazon brings to the table. Got it. So you run begin.com in addition to working on this arc the open source architect file format. 
Tell me what begin.com is. Yeah, so along the way, building architect, it became really clear to us that the CICD side of this story is, is still pretty nascent and not very good. And where it does exist, it's uh, relying on metaphors from the last generation of software. And that's okay. This isn't a condemnation of how things are. I'm not saying you're bad if you run your own Jenkins. It's okay. <laughs> but we, we think that there's an opportunity to like take a look at this stuff from the lens of serverless and deploy serverless applications and take advantage of those applications' characteristics. So one of the characteristics of uh, these serverless apps is they're pretty fast to be deployed. You get this single deterministic artifact. We know exactly what our compute and our storage and our network requirements are. They're really well documented and separate from each other. And we've gotten our deploys down to sub 10 seconds because of this. So your lead time to production can be 10 seconds if you want. And we think that's a powerful idea, and that's the predicate for begin. You're focused on fast deployments, fast time to market. Tell me more about how you accelerate the developer experience on begin. Yeah, so everything that Begin deploys is just a cloud formation document. So if you're on board with this world of building for Amazon and you've ceded to the fact that they're they're probably, you know, the incumbent that you want to target and if you've ceded to the fact that you're going to write cloud formation or use something to generate it, then this world is going to be pretty awesome for you. So you work locally. You build just like normal, you would normally. And then when you commit your code, this CloudFormation document will get generated. If it's the first time, it'll do a CloudFormation deploy. Two stacks. It'll create a staging stack and a production stack for you instantly. Subsequent deploys will only update the function code in the staging stack immediately, directly. So you don't have to wait for a full CloudFormation cycle. We'll just like shoot the code straight into Lambda functions. This seems scary and dangerous and weird, and it is. That's why we only do it to staging stacks. <laughs> the production stacks are totally deterministic cloud formation derived things. And yeah, that's how it works. And so it's just a normal developer experience. You work locally, you commit your code, and, and when you commit it, it deploys. It just happens to deploy really fast. What's the connection between the architect project and begin? Uh, Begin is weirdly both written in Architect and uh, deployed by it, by itself. <laughs> so it's uh, like a quine of its own making. We built Begin for ourselves. And as people saw us building stuff with it, they were like, oh, that's amazing. And that kind of became the predicate for the Begin product being a continuous integration thing. We deploy CloudFormation documents. That's really it. I mean, it's built with itself, too. And so it's constantly feeding into itself. I think as a startup, you kind of want to use your own stuff. And so some choices in architect look weird. Uh, people will look at it and they'll be like, oh, why did you do it that way? And likely we did it that way, whatever that way is, because we knew that would be the best way based on the direct experience of the building begin itself. Do you expect the users that deploy their applications on begin to define their applications in architect currently that is a thing but there's maybe by the time this is out actually you should be able to just give it any cloud formation and it'll deploy that so that's our goal with it right now it is architect aware and architect special as it were we want to move away from that though and be more cloud formation and more agnostic either way honestly as a developer you shouldn't know or care so I feel like a little bit of this is, is an implementation detail. So, you know, we don't talk about how we're deploying our Terraform stacks or whatever, right? Like we're just deploying. And at some point, I think that it's going to get like that for the CloudFormation serverless world. But there's still, 
we're still in the early moments of this thing. So it's it's just the idea of infrared code is still a bit controversial. I know the front-end developer community thinks it's an unnecessary ceremony right now. And, and they might be right, honestly. You know, maybe we can infer all this stuff. I don't know how to infer a database table name or back one up <laughs> that is like inferred, but I would love it if it worked that way. And I think that that's a, a worthy goal if we can make this, hot, you know, kind of be part of the substrate and like, I'm not saying it'll go away, but it, I could very much see this world of infra as code become like an implementation detail or perhaps a generated artifact of some kind. With Architect, we've got like something insane. Like a, it's like a 80 to one lines of code delta. So mm -hmm. for every line of code you write in Architect, you'll get 80 lines of cloud formation on the other side. So this isn't something special or because we're really smart. This is just how things go. Stuff is always moving up the stack. We're always getting more abstracted. And so I think over time that this stuff will get easier because it always does. There are a few examples of hosting companies that are built around an open source project. So some past examples are like Zite, Meteor, Meteor, the serverless company, Sencha. Sencha, I haven't heard of that one. Accelerator. Right. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. How, how does your strategy compare to those other companies? I think that's complementary and similar in many ways. So the idea is that you have an open core of some kind, and then that's a funnel to your your actual business. I think you can die by your open source framework too. You know, when React becomes unpopular which it will, because these things do. If you, that is your core thing, then that'll suck, <laughs> right? If your whole thing is based on React being popular. And, and to say, and I'm sure people right now are saying, oh, there's no way that'll happen. <laughs> and I was a part of the jQuery Foundation, and we, we, to <laughs> we totally agree. It'll never happen. You'll always be popular relative to where you were, but you will never be more popular than the new thing that you know, supplants you in the future. And there's always a cycle of this. This is how tech works. This is why we have to keep innovating. This is why Apple had to release an iPod. You know, like you're going to have to add new stuff in the future. So I think being open core based is smart as long as you know that it's temporal and you have to stay with the times. Architect, the original version of it, was SDK based. So we didn't use any cloud formation. And people always ask me, like, why would you do it that way? And I'll tell you why, because CloudFormation didn't support anything I wanted to do. So <laughs> CloudFormation does not come out with support typically right away for the newest services. That's changing a little bit at Amazon right now, but it wasn't always the case. And so when we first built Architect, it was SDK-based. And it was very clear to us that we had to change that because the, you know, the shift towards Infra's code is very obvious. And it's also obvious to us that you, we're going to need tools to make Infra's code a little more tenable. So... Yeah, I think being open core based is fine as long as it's not your total identity and you're, you're adaptable. I also think that open core, it can be smarmy. So it really depends on your like licensing and stuff. If you're open, but the only people that can contribute have a Google badge, are you really open? You know? And that's why open governance is important to me. I really feel that you know if, if open means proprietary venture-backed startup, that's not very open, actually. That's that's pretty close, and there's a huge lock-in risk with that because eventually, you know, the venture capitalists want to return on their money. What will happen with that open source project if it's the funnel? Not good things. So that's something to be aware of too. Yeah, talking more broadly, developers are increasingly using CDNs as a deployment medium mm -hmm. for their app. What's the role of the CDN or the edge server in modern deployment? 
Yeah, we have to thank Netlify for making this a thing. So CDNs used to be like where I put my fonts and stuff. And uh, now CDNs are my app. That's the edge of my application. And it's absolutely the right way to do it. I think it's a far better user experience to have your, you know, your time to interactive be as low as possible. I think it's interesting that it's become such a big deal too, because it's sort of just something you, you set and forget. We broadly group cloud resources by network compute and storage, and this would be a network thing. And the life cycle for network resources is usually pretty long. You don't change your domain very often. You don't change your CDN every day. So it's kind of a set and forget thing. So it's like, yeah, this is really important. You will definitely do it once in the life of your company. <laughs> That's kind of it. Like, I don't really have deeper, exciting thoughts. I'm definitely watching the edge compute thing. Lambda functions on the on the edge, I think, is, is a big future space, but we're not there yet. So it's something to watch. I think the CDN has typically also been very static. And so like it's where you put stuff and stuff stays there and it doesn't really change. And as a result, invalidation is actually pretty bad for the most part. And that's where these second layer providers are, are winning right now. The reason Netlify and Zyde are so popular is because they invalidate the or Cloudflare. They invalidate their cache like that. Or just CloudFront, it takes like 20 minutes. Mm-hmm. So very confident that Amazon is both aware of this problem and can fix it. I think they can anyways. I don't know. You know, maybe they can be out-resourced by a small venture-backed company. We'll see. Yeah, so, you know, cash invalidation would be the big delta between the major players right now. But once that's fixed, I don't really think it's something people will think a whole lot about. It'll just be how things work. How will WebAssembly affect web development in the limit? Well, right now it doesn't affect it at all because you have to write pretty low-level code for it to be a game-changer for you. And... I think there is an opportunity when the tooling gets there in the future that this could be a disintermediation of Lambda, where we could see the edge become the Lambda, and we're deploying these Wasm bundles to the edge. You only have to play with Go and Rust for about a half hour before you realize how far we are from that reality, though. It's it's a ways away. The, the future is bright. It's up there on the shining hill. I can't wait for it to happen. I totally want to write a front end in Python and deploy it to a CDN, but you're not doing that today. Not without a lot of effort. And it's not the first-party ecosystem that's the problem. So you can write you know, Rust or Go or even Python and get that into a Wasm binary and put that at the edge. It's all of the third-party ecosystem interactions that are the problem. So like your DynamoDB client is not currently going to compile into that Wasm binary. So how are you going to talk to it? Probably HTTP. Have you done SIG3 signing with HTTP before? It's not fun. Now you got to do that. So it's just like real low level still. And everyone that's excited about this space knows it though, and it's coming. But it's one of those things. It's kind of like fusion. It's, you know, right around the corner. We're almost there. And this isn't to condemn people working on fusion. I don't want you to feel bad. I know it's coming, but <laughs> it's, it's probably a ways away. It would come faster if they used WebAssembly. Right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> How did you get Begin.com? Oh, I have an amazing co-founder, and he's extremely meticulous. His name's Ryan Block, and Ryan ran a process. And by Begin.com, I mean the domain name. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so it turns out five-letter domain names can be bought, and anyone can buy them. And usually they're pretty coveted, though. You know, once you get down to five letters, that's a big deal. 
And so there's this sub-industry. I don't know if you know about domain brokers. Have you heard about these? Sure, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, this was new to me. So we, we found a domain broker, and we knew we wanted an actionable five-letter word that could be a verb. And we started to go through the dictionary, and we made a huge long list and until we got to B before we found one that we could afford. <laughs> but yeah, that was it. That was the process. So you can't be attached to the outcome of the domain name. You have to be prepared to get one that you might not be ready for, but that will suit your criteria. And then you just got to work through a giant list and find something within your budget. Our budget was big, but it wasn't actually so big that it was not impossible for a pre-seed startup to do. So it took us, I want to say, seven months, however, and we didn't know the name of our product or our company during that seven months. So that was actually tough. You know, like we had a shitty placeholder domain that was deliberately bad with like a cheesy TLD. And we, we did that on purpose because we're like, this isn't it. Right. And, and then we've, we found Begin and we found an, an awesome person that had had it since the 90s. And they were excited about what we were doing. So we sort of sold them on the startup and got them excited about it. And we were able to come to a deal that was within our budget. Nice. Yeah. All right. Last question. All right. How does AWS look in the long run, 10 years for five years, however long you can project out, what does the experience of using AWS look like? Yeah, that's a tough question. That's great. I, I think it's interesting. There's a lot of people out there that think UX is a moat and that like you could build a better UX and that Amazon wouldn't be able to copy you. And I think that's very optimistic. So <laughs> Amazon has resources to do whatever they want. And one of the things that they don't care about right now is, you know, your small startup, whatever that small startup is. And so like, sure, yeah, your UX is better right now. Very much like Microsoft with operating systems, the UX at some point will be something they care about and that they'll work on. I think they are already working on it. They're just doing it in two pizza team fashion. So there's the AWS Amplify team. They are doing a really great job of creating an onboarding experience. It's something that normal developers would want to see. There's the AWS SAM team, which is kind of coming out from the DevOpsy side. And well, you know, there you go. There's two real easy ways amongst the hundreds of bad ways to get started with Amazon. So do I think it gets easier to use? I think for certain verticals, it'll get easier to use. I think they're going to continue to accelerate and get bigger and bigger. I think they're going to take out competitors. I think they're going to buy some competitors. I don't see them stopping. I don't see them slowing down. I do see it getting easier over time as they enter more and more markets, which is pretty scary. Brian, thanks for coming on the show. It's been great talking to you. Yeah, likewise. Thanks, Jeff. <laughs>